Welcome to Why We Wrote This. I'm Samantha Lani Perfoss. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a complicated piece of legislation that has reached the Supreme Court. The Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA, was passed by Congress in 1978. The law seeks to keep Native children with Native families by prioritizing tribal members when it comes to adopting or fostering Native children. The law is being challenged in Brackeen v. Holland on a variety of grounds. I spoke to Henry Gass, who covers the U.S. Supreme Court and Native issues for The Monitor. He recently wrote a cover story for The Monitor Weekly that dives into the complexity, both legal and emotional, of this issue. Here's our conversation. Henry, ICWA is a pretty complicated piece of legislation. Would you mind sharing some of the context and history around why it was enacted in the first place? You can really trace it back to the late 1800s when the federal government started to sort of systematically put Native children in large numbers into boarding schools with the partial goal of assimilating them into white culture. When those schools started to close down in the 60s and 70s, the social work agencies and states and the private adoption agencies started to take Native children from their homes as well. They considered them to be sort of in unfit homes. Native children were taken in disproportionate numbers from their families. So Congress began sort of debating and discussing this problem and eventually passed ICWA in 1978 with the goal of reducing the numbers of Native children who were being placed into foster care and and adoption care. ICWA is being challenged And one big argument is that the law is actually discriminatory. Could you talk about how that might be? At the time it was passed, about one in four Native children were in foster care or adoption, often adopted by non-Native families. The law was aimed at reducing that, and some of the ways it did so is through placement preferences that gives priority to Native families. So family members get first priority then members of the child's tribe get second priority, and then any Native family in the country is sort of third priority. One of the arguments that the law is discriminatory is that it discriminates against Native children by having these preferences, which the plaintiffs here argue that discriminates against their sort of equal protection rights. And there's one family, the Brackeen family, I believe, involved in the case. Can you share a bit about their experience? The Brackeens, they live in North Texas. They have two biological children, but around 2016, they say they heard a call from God to adopt. So they started fostering this 10-month-old boy who's known as ALM in in court documents. They fostered him for over a year and decided they wanted to formally adopt him. As they start those adoption proceedings, the Navajo Nation intervenes through ICWA, and they found a Navajo family in Colorado who were willing to adopt him. And because of those placement preferences that ICWA has, they would technically get preference over the Brockeens, even though they had been fostering him for for most of his life at that point. So the Brockeens lost that initial case, but they appealed it and won. And so they actually have adopted ALM now. But through that case, they also made the case that the Supreme Court is hearing, which isn't about a particular custody proceeding. It's more about ICWA itself. It's interesting to think about their experience as a non-Native family caring for this child. However, if you look at the broad perspective of ICWA, there's also this effort to protect the child's sense of identity, culture, Mm -hmm. and belonging. How is the law intended to protect that? 
the law is born out of this history of intentional efforts to break up native tribes and erode their culture by assimilation. There's the argument that the Barkins and other families make that young children who are in foster care with non-native families for, in the case of ALM, it was over half of his life. And then to be taken away from that family is traumatic and impactful. But there's another argument that in the long-term interests of the child, it's beneficial for them to grow up in a community, in a culture that they're rooted in and that they have family in or that they're in a community with people that look like them. And so they have a sense of personal identity, cultural identity. So you have sort of those competing interests. One of the women you interviewed in your story was Tanya Blackburn. Can you talk about what happened in her life and how she experienced the effects of ICWA? She grew up in Oklahoma. Both her parents were native. And she said earlier in her life, her mother really rooted her in their culture. They would go to powwows and, and dances. And she was very exposed to those traditions and ceremonies and practices. And then she wound up in foster care later in her childhood. She ultimately spent about 11 years in foster care, bouncing from foster home to foster home. She lived in about 10 ultimately. She would go to these foster homes that were putatively native with native foster parents and they either like didn't practice native traditions at all, or they practice different traditions from different tribes. And, and she says it was just nothing like what she would do with her mother. She sort of felt disconnected from her culture and, and her tribe and her tradition because of these placements in her childhood. And it's sort of never really been the same. Basically, she says, Iqua didn't work for her. Did you talk to anybody who was native, but was raised by a non-native family and what their experience was like? I spoke with Sandy Whitehawk, who was adopted at 18 months old by a white family. She was raised in Wisconsin. One of the first things she said when we started talking was, you know, you grow up and you just don't see yourself anywhere. You know, small things like someone saying, oh, you laugh just like your aunt. Um, you never hear things like that. Her mother would talk about how she was from a reservation, but she didn't know what a reservation was. Just a feeling of knowing you're different, but not knowing why. And that just made her feel very alone. And then she was 35. She went back to the Rosebud Reservation where she was from. And she said that was like she was breathing differently from how she'd ever, ever breathed before. Like her spirit was healed because she saw people who looked like her and sort of also knew her or knew her family. That's exactly the kind of feeling, the kind of childhood and development that ICWA is trying to ensure and preserve. It's so complicated to think about how this law is trying to address all of these really valid concerns. And it is often emotional mm. for all parties involved. I'm curious how you have approached this case as a reporter. This case is very emotional. It's about children, about child welfare. It's also about tribal sovereignty, historical injustice and trauma. So it's all the more important to talk with every person involved in a non-judgmental way. They're telling their truth, their lived experience, and it's my duty to listen non-judgmentally and transmit that as best I can. In this legal battle, do you see any areas of common ground or things that give you hope that the best interest of the child could remain at the center of the conversation? ICWA requires lots of communication and coordination between tribes, between state child welfare agencies, adoption agencies, lots of different parties, and that doesn't always happen. 
But one thing ICWA has been able to achieve is build up those partnerships and sort of create this infrastructure around making sure that ICWA is followed and it's developed relationships between tribes and the localities near them and the states they reside in. In that way, it's maybe helped improve the system in some aspects. I think one of the things that makes this case so challenging is that everyone has the best interests of the children at heart. They just sort of maybe disagree on what those best interests are. I mean, the case itself is very complicated. You know, we talked about the arguments being made around the law being discriminatory. There are other questions around it infringing on states' rights. You know, the question of like how much power Congress should have over Indian affairs, which means there are lots of ways that the court could ultimately decide the case. They had the oral argument on November 9th. It lasted for over three hours. Oral arguments typically are about an hour long. It's very hard to predict how they're going to decide. And it's unlikely, I'd say, to be your typical ideological divide on the court. Well, thank you so much, Henry. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. To find links to Henry's reporting, a transcript of this episode, and our show notes, visit csmonitor.com slash why we wrote this. This episode was hosted by me, Samantha Liney Perfoss, and co-produced with Jingnan Pung, edited by Clay Collins. Our sound engineers were Noel Flat and Alyssa Britton, with original music by Noel Flat, produced by the Christian Science Monitor, copyright 2022.